Effect podcast, and we've got a panel here today of the great and the good from all around the gaming world, from across the Atlantic even, of people that have been involved with some of our best loved, but also slightly scary game worlds, worlds like Glorantha, which have been around as long as I've been role-playing, the world of darkness, uh, Rokugan, the, the world of the Legend of the Five Rings, and uh, the Third Horizon, which I know quite a lot about because I do a podcast about it. But we often get asked, where do I start in the Third Horizon? And I always feel like replying, first of all, well, the Third Horizon is easy. That's baby food. And we've got here four, four people to talk about all of those things. And I get you all to introduce yourselves in turn. But let's start with you, Jeff, who... Um, you're now in charge of the granddaddy of all fantasy worlds. That's right. I'm I'm Jeff Richard. I'm the chair of Chaosium Inc. And I'm also the creative director for Chaosium. We're the publishers of uh, Call of Cthulhu, Pendragon, and RuneQuest. And here I'm talking about RuneQuest and Glorantha, the big daddy of fantasy settings. Uh, and do you, want, do you want me to give a little bit of background on yeah, give us how a big of a big daddy it and is? And the reason why we should play in Glorantha. Okay, well, well um, Glorantha has been in publication since 1975 uh, with uh, White Bear, Red Moon. It came out uh, three years later with RuneQuest. It has pretty much, well, from out of RuneQuest uh, and, and Glorantha, it it spawned off Call of Cthulhu and Pendragon. It has been done as a uh, narrative game with HeroQuest, which uh, Robin Laws and I uh, did. It's been done as more of a traditional classic uh, fantasy RPG with 13th Age in Glorantha, which was done with uh, Rob Hinzo and uh, Jonathan Tweet. It's been in computer games, board games, you name it. and. It is up there with basically Tecamol for the most in-depth, uh, deepest and broadest of RPG settings. And I'd argue it's even, you know, uh, uh, M.A. Barker uh, created a work of genius with Tecamol, but Glorantha kept, kept creating and growing for the last 45 years. And I'd say it's it's pretty much, well, the heaviest and deepest of all the fantasy IPs out there. I think it's the best. I think everybody else in this uh, panel may have their own favorites. But uh, it is definitely the big daddy, though, of them all. Brilliant. The big daddy game uh, and the game world. Uh, and then moving on to a more recent entrant, uh, but still much loved, still a number of games or a, num uh, a number of titles related to that world. And that's um, and that's the world of darkness. Now, B-Dave, you are uh, an experienced explorer of the world of darkness and somewhat of a celebrity vampire as, as Victor. But um, tell... Tell us more about you and your and your game world. Uh, hey, yeah, no, thanks for thanks for having me here. Yeah, I, I love the fact that we're like it's a new entrant and it's like been thirty years. Uh, but I mean, I guess that's uh, that's that's how high the bar is set now. Yeah, uh, B. Dave Walters. Uh, I am not an employee of the World of Darkness or Paradox Interactive. I'm just blessed to get to play a lot in their sandbox. Uh, you probably know me as I do play Victor Temple, the undisputed Baron of the Valley on Vampire the Masquerade, L.A. by Night. Uh, I also start. Storytell, Long Beach by Night, uh, and Anarchs of New York. I think I've probably run more games of V5 than anyone else alive. Jason and Jason Carl and I talk about this because uh, because of my Patreon, I'm closing in on like 400 games, maybe like five, like 10 to 12 a week for a year. So wow. I guess uh, we're four, three-ish hundred, four-ish hundred. Um, the world of darkness, uh, not to dive too deep into it right now, is this world. It is the world you already live in, except it's all the things that are being kept from you, that vampires are real. Uh, werewolves, uh, mages, wraiths, changelings, fey, everything that goes bump in the night, uh, and it's fantastic. And it has kind of uh, entered into a new renaissance in the last couple of years or so with the uh, the publishing of Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition. It's been about 15 years with nothing new in there, although uh, Onyx Path can definitely keep putting out content and some other indie uh, producers, but the World of Darkness has come back in force recently, uh, and I've just been lucky to be able to ride that wave. 
Cool. Thanks very much, B. Dave. Uh, and then, and Julie, yours is the next oldest world, uh, and it's one that I have a lot of love for. Uh, although I found it relatively recently, about five or six years ago. What can you tell me about Rokugan? Hi everyone, I am Anjali, a geek girl bookworm online everywhere. I'm also the marketing and publicity manager for Aconite Books, which is a new publishing imprint from Asmodee Entertainments. Uh, we write novels set in the IPs of board games. Uh, so L5R and uh, Rookadun are uh, one of our IPs that we write uh, cool stories in. So Rookadun is a sort of feudal Japan that takes a lot of influence from other uh, East Asian cultures such as China, Mongolia. It was originally by Alder Entertainment Games uh, in 1995 and was picked up by FFG in 2015. FFG also a sister partner of Asmodee um, as a family. It's the, the world itself is the basis for the collectible card game, the living card game, and the RPG. Uh, so it has huge fan base from different uh, types of players. The thing that I really like about it is that currently what the fans do within tournaments can affect the canonical sort of world so depending on what the players achieve within a tournament can change the history and the timeline that's currently going on within the rpgs and uh within the other card games and also at aconite we're sort of working in that as well to try and keep timelines going uh, as they change um yeah i think i just i i really really like the system uh, i really like the a world and the reason that I like it is that unlike um sort of other games where it's more adventure epic heroes this you can do a lot with like uh courtly deception and diplomacy and things so you have the option to have characters that are very sneaky and very clever and rather than big action heroes and I think that appeals to uh, a lot of people who maybe aren't um sort of in the the fantasy sort of realm of of role playing yeah and the other thing i like about it somebody mentioned to me uh, that it's a bit like dnd except you're all playing paladins yeah, <laughs> and I, I love the fact that everybody's got this code of honor and and the conflict often comes from wanting to do the right thing but knowing that you can't do the right thing or or vice versa yeah and you have to be within a particular clan so there's eight great clans and they all have their own rules and uh, ways of acting around each other and within situations. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Anne Julie. We've got a little bit of time now for Matthias. Sorry, I'm not leaving you much time, but introduce yourself, Matthias, and introduce for us the third horizon. Yeah, uh, Matthias Jonsson Hake. It's my name, and I am a very proud member of the Swedish game publisher Fria Ligan, or Free League. Uh, what I do, I manage two of our brands, Symbarum and Coriolis, and I also do a lot of writing and editing. And well, my primary focus, you could say, is the setting design and also maybe adventure design. Anyway, uh, my little baby, the third horizon, is but uh, 14 or 15 years old. It was introduced in a Swedish game published in Swedish only uh, called Coriolis in 2008 I believe uh, and it didn't see a translation into English until 10 years later uh, at the hands of Free League and well I don't know you wanted me to keep it short so let's <laughs> it's a science fiction setting it's uh, often described in terms of an of an arabesque space opera mm. uh, and if you want one reason why one, anyone should consider playing in the Third Horizon, I would say that it's depth when it comes to conflicting morals, politics, and in the end, factions is uh, should be a huge draw for anyone uh, considering uh, uh, investing the time to to you know play in the Third Horizon. But in in this, I may as well ask you for some hints 
as to why people should play because I know you love it. Well, yeah. So uh, obviously we love it. It, it. We started off our podcast, Effect Podcast, was originally called the Coriolis Effect because we fell in love with that world so much. I think one of the reasons why we like it is the mechanical idea of prayer, that you can pray to the icons in this world and they will answer you. Um, with a with an extra roll, hooray! Uh, and particularly, what I love about that is, uh, you, if you pray in advance of something, you get an extra di- uh, extra dice bonus. So it's better to pray in advance. My players are always going off, and they're always going off to find a chapel because if you pray in a chapel in advance of any action, you, you think you're going into a fight, so you want to go and pray to the judge or whatever. Then you go and pray to the judge in a chapel, and it's just. I, uh, sorry, I've played Pendragon, Jeff, for thirty years, and uh, and you know I'm I'm meant to be a Christian knight. I don't think once have I ever thought to myself, "Oh, I must go and pray in the chapel." Um, and so that's that's my own, one of the reasons why I find um, this game so uh, attractive. But it's not about me; it's about new players and. One of the things that I have heard from uh, our audience, we run a podcast, we produce a show every three weeks or so, but our audience often say, well, well, a number of questions. I'm going to spit them out a little bit. So the first one is, what do I actually do in Coriolis? And I think particularly if you compare it with a lot of games nowadays, uh, a lot of, say, um, uh, powered by the apocalypse games or things like Blades in the Dark, mm. it's very o- obvious what character you are going to create and what your action is going to be. So, for example, in Blades of the Dark, you are in a city and you are a city gang and you're doing scams. Mm. There's so much possibility. And let's start with you, Mitya, since, since we're here and since you asked. There's so much possibility in the world of the third horizon for what you might be and what you could do that I think for some players, again, I can't, don't know where to start. So how would you answer that? I would say that, that the Coriolis is designed to be played the way you want to play it. I mean, if it, 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 it is a setting and a system, uh, hopefully designed so that you can choose to play, you know, intrigues or or detective stories or you want to go out in the into the universe and trade or you want to you want to be emissaries to foreign cultures or that it is definitely not designed to to be played uh in one single manner or in some single way uh and that goes for i would say quite a lot of the games that we played growing up, there, there was no one telling us, you know, this is a, a, a game about treasure hunting. Mm-hmm. It presented us with, with the tools to tell the stories that we wanted to tell. Uh, so that that's the short answer. Uh, no, we, we will never tell you what to do in the world of Coriolis because we feel that maybe you know what you think is fun. Sorry, I I just wanted to amplify on on Matthias there because this is an issue that with any good, in in my opinion, any good, broad and deep setting is going to have something, is going to have the incredible opportunity that the players and the GMs can, can make it be whatever they want it to be. On the other hand, that is a barrier to entry. Uh, now, personally, I consider that a barrier to entry that is absolutely worth paying. I, you know that that that's part of the reward of this. But it, it you know this this is the, the the spectrum that as a setting becomes deeper, broader, more interesting, it means that there's more ways to access that, and that more ways creates a a uh, forces people to make a decision decision up front. Hey, what do I want to do with this? And and this is, I think, something that every, I know this is an issue with World of Darkness. I mean, the only commonality in every game there is you're, you're dead and you're a vampire. Um, <laughs> and even that's not really true. Uh, and, and, uh, but this is the first thing that we always get with RuneQuest is, okay, what always, you know, what are you supposed to do in Glorampic setting? Do what you want. But that is a barrier to entry. 
I mean, I think that's I think that's why you also get the cl- the cliche of the man in black in the tavern, though. <laughs> you know that it's like that was how every game started. You know, a shadowy figure asks you to do a thing. Um, I think almost uh, most TTRPGs. I can't think of any unless I was running a specific module that was like this is how the game starts. Whereas almost every video game has that by the linear nature of the storytelling. I think it's really important then, like because of that barrier that you do have that sort of session zero with your players and talk about what it is that you want as the GM and also what the players want so that you can work out what theme you're going to go with this story, especially when you've got like, if you want to do something that's more modular, which book do you choose? Because like they've all been going on so long, there's so many different editions and different books that you can have. You don't want to start off with like all the books because... Yeah. Oh, I just, and, 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 and and let me also jump in. I'm, and I'm sorry, I I'm, I'm just filled with ca- caffeine, caffeine goodness right now. Go ahead. Um, no but the um, one of the other issues that, that that session zero is so important about is okay. What do I need to know about this setting? And what do I need to know about my character so that I don't sit around and spin my wheels for the first two or three sessions trying to figure out well. You know, wandering around like a prima donna actor or actress going, what's my motivation here? <laughs> um, you know, that, 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 uh, that, that's the incredible value of the, the, um, the Zero session. When we came up with the new, uh, the new Rose for RuneQuest, this is something that Ken Rolston, who was involved in. And Ken was uh, involved in designing Morrowind and Oblivion uh, and, and, and similar computer games that folk might have heard of. And, and Ken said, you know, in a video game, what's great is you can set things up where your care, where you as a player deliberately don't know anything. Mm-hmm. And you're, you know, that it's this is a classic start for every one of the Morrowind games. You are a prisoner. You know nothing. Um, and you can learn it in, uh, in uh, through the game. That's hard to do with tabletop. Tabletop front loads a lot of things very early once uh, play starts, you know, it front loads, how do the mechanics work? It front loads, what are, what are important pieces of information? And it, it makes, in my opinion, a set, uh, that, that zero session absolutely critical. Yeah. We will come back to zero sessions, actually, but you've raised a lot of questions there. And I'm thinking about, you know, my own experience uh, playing Skyrim and, being very confused in the first bit where you are a prisoner as you say and then it gives you an opportunity to actually create your character but you've already found just a little bit out about the world and you're ready then to say well this is the person I am within that and I'm comparing that with my experience so I've been wanting to play in Glorantha since I was about 13 uh, but the guy who owned RuneQuest in our in our school group didn't like Glorantha at all, and so he created his own homebrew world. And I was kind of reading through White Dwarf and reading the stories of Griselda, thinking, well, this looks like really good fun, but we've got to do the more generic fantasy world that uh, this guy wants to run. So I've only recently, uh, about three years ago, started a campaign with Nick, who I think you know well, Jeff, mm-hmm. uh, Nick Brooke, who's running a great campaign for us in the new edition of, of, of RuneQuest. I'm loving it. But I was in exactly that position of not knowing who my character was, even with the really wonderful character generation system that puts your character firmly in the world. It took me two or three sessions to think about what am I doing in life? And, you know, and what I'm doing in life is I'm being quite a crap shaman uh, because <laughs> I, 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 I didn't... I, I, I spread my love for all the runes pretty evenly, so I'm not, you know, none of the runes are particularly influential over me. That was a bad mechanical decision, but, but, but yeah, discovering that character in two or three sessions felt really good, and I was blessed with having Nick to take me into that world without having to read too much. But um, Dave, I'm just thinking about uh, uh, Vampire. Uh, I love v5 it it, i was always a little bit against the earlier editions of vampire because i felt it's too many uh, superheroes in trench coats with katanas and v5 felt properly monstrous for me but there's a lot of front-end reading in that book 
I started reading, you know, the, the the introductory fiction that they always put at the front of their books there. I think, and then thinking, well, there's pages and pages and pages of this. Am I, if I were a new player, should I read all of that before I start? Uh, absolutely not. Although I'm, I'm going to say uh, one quick thing that I want to uh, add on to what, what you were saying uh, a second ago, and then I'm going to answer that question. I think... Um, Something that works out really well, too, is when you're creating characters is think first about who they are. Don't think about class, race, mechanics, none of that. It's just, who is this person? They're, they're an alcoholic sellsword. They're a, they're a priest that disappointed their father. They're a, a common beggar. And, and for new players, the thing that I usually start off by asking them is, I'm like, what's your favorite movie in this genre? Who's your favorite character in that movie? Okay, you you like Neo, cool. You like Trinity, cool. You like Boromir, cool. You like Faramir, cool. You like Mr. Spock, Lieutenant Worf, whatever. And use that as the framework for how you kind of drill down for the original way to start. Mm -hmm. um, with Vampire in the World of Darkness, absolutely not. When I do character creation, I start with the actual quick start guide, which is on page 135 of the of V5, which mm -hmm. I know that offhand because I've done this a couple of times. The thing about the V5 book is it was built to be a style guide. It was built to be beautiful, not functional. Mm -hmm. uh, so all of that lore and stuff is beautiful and wonderful and has nothing to do with the game. I mean, it does, of course, but it is it is sort of the sediment out of which the game grows. I think part of the reason why uh, it's easy for people to adapt to the world of darkness more so than a lot of other game systems I've found is again, it's this world. If yeah. you want to run a game, it can be set in your town. Um, so you know all the landmarks when you're describing what Walmart looks like, everybody understands it. When, you, uh, when you're describing what it's like to go fight werewolves in the Rose Bowl, everybody can get their head around that. Um, and so the onboarding process is a uh, a little bit easier, um, I find. And I also think one of the easiest way to onboard new players into a thing, skip a lot of the jargon. It doesn't matter. Like, I mean, I can talk to you all day about Malkavians and Ventru and Tremere, or I can be like, these ones... Uh, traditionally in the old game, they were expressed kind of insensitively in terms of being the mentally ill ones, but they're the ones that see things differently. They're very unique. These are kind of the business vampires, the more predatory puppet master ones. These are the blood magicians. And people are like, oh, okay, I can get my head around that. And then once they sort of uh, pick one, then you just sort of fill in more and more and more. Because what Rich or Jeff said uh, was right. A lot of it is front-loaded, but I think as a DM that is overwhelming to 99% of your players and the 1% it's not overwhelming for will let you know because they will show up already having read it. Yeah, it is my character. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and and I, I will say that that's something I've actually seen on uh, on a notice board, on, 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 a, on a forum once. And Julie, somebody said uh, to me, um, if, if my players aren't willing to read the source material, then I don't want them to play in my game of L5R, which I argued with at the time. I was saying, well, surely all of us as players discovering the worlds that you as a GM are presenting to us. Uh, do you think that it's important to get some reading done in 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 um, in Rokugan? I, I for, for any setting, like I don't think it's uh, the the most important thing. Like I think it's important that maybe you understand what the setting's about because if you go in with absolutely no idea you might find then that the setting is not something that you were interested in playing uh, but if you've gone for l5r even from the cover art you can tell that this is going to be sort of a um east east asian uh themed yeah uh, story so that at least gives you a hint uh when it comes to like all the law that if you want to read it like great but i would also i would I would also be weary, wary of that because if you as the GM don't have all of that knowledge yourself, you haven't like completely soaked yourself in that story. You don't want to be arguing with your players because you've taken it somewhere else and they believe the canon says this. Um, I think it's it's very frustrating as a GM <laughs> when someone says, hey, yeah, but no, but this clan does this or, or this happened like, you know, 10 years ago. So it can't possibly happen now. And as the GM, you have to be like, well, actually, no, this is my story. And it can make for a really uncomfortable table if someone is very, very heavy in the law and you as the GM 
or other players are not and you're here to learn together um again that's a sort of a session zero thing that you have to talk about expectations of the dm and the players um, okay that brings me on to a, a really important point because I've, I've actually had this as a real experience where i joined it well i didn't join in the end i didn't join this new group partly because of this one experience where i'd i'd come i'd, I'd come away from a, a group where we'd enjoyed a really good a uh, little campaign of uh, fourth edition uh, L5R. And I said, oh, I, I don't mind running that in this club. And they kind of went, no, 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 we only play third edition L5R here. Um, and, and not just the rule system, because I don't think there was much difference between third and fourth edition. Not like the big change between fifth. But the, the world of the third edition is the one we want to play in. We don't want to deal with any of your fourth edition shit, which I didn't even realise it was a bit of a world. Anyway, that never happened. Um, but I'm aware that there is a phrase, Jeff, that you guys have called your Glorantha will vary. Yes, this is because in 45 years of having the same setting, um, and many, many different editions of the game. You can imagine the sort of fights uh, that that gamers being very passionate about the things that they are passionate about. You can imagine the levels of, of, of fights over what is canon, what is not. Is this, hey, I, I bought something that came out in 1982 that contradicts what you've just said, GM. Etc. So uh, we've had a long phrase that your Glorantha will vary. And we have a corollary to that, which is canon is actually something that only the publisher and the people working for the publisher should really worry about. You know, if you're writing for, uh, a book for in RuneQuest for us, yeah, I'm going to want you to fit, the, you know, your writing should fit into the canon or we're going to have to edit it to, to put it in. But once that book gets taken by a game master and players, it's whatever they want to make out of it. And they, they should feel empowered that the version of the setting that is at that table is the one true version and frankly the version that they're playing and experiencing that's more important than anything i write or anything that's out there in publication because that's the that's your version of it and and run with it and and enjoy it and don't worry that you've contradicted something that is out in some obscure uh print or publication that would have stopped you having the fun or the interest at your table you know that's that's the real setting is yeah. the setting that you experience. Yeah. I can't imagine what what kind of monster would flatly refuse to play an edition of a beloved game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, also, I like to point out to people when they say things like, OK, I was I was born in 84. So asking me to do some of these older editions, I'll, you know, some of them I w wasn't born in or, uh, you know, I w was still in primary school. Yeah. I am not aware of those editions because of my age. And if people want to do an edition, like if someone is very dead set on doing a third edition game, then what I say to them, well, then you're going to have to run it because I don't have the knowledge to play that one. I'll play along with you, but you're going to have to take the time and do the research and do all the planning and run the game yourself because it's this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, 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 uh, along the line of the, the research and, and all of this is, is, is something that often spins around. This is something that, that, that I like about World of Darkness. Um, uh, I remember talking with Mark about this. You know, it's one of the great advantages Call of Cthulhu has as well is, is because it's set in the real world. You know, when I'm doing something that's set in Chicago, I don't worry and figure out where every bar in Chicago is and, and, and obsess about that. We don't do this when it's the real world. We, we are perfectly happy going, yeah, yeah, it's Chicago. You know, there's got to be an Irish bar uh, uh, in this neighborhood. And, you know, it, five or six sessions later, I, as the GM, may have forgotten the name of the Irish bar and I, I give it a new name. And that fits with our own sense of reality because bars don't stay forever in a place. No, so we, they do we, change their name. We have a, a lower threshold for what we consider the, the level of research in our own real world than we do often in fantasy or science fiction settings. And it's something I'd say, I, I, I don't know the answer to that, but it's, it's a, a fascinating behavior. 
Uh, and, and, and I want to remind people that are enjoying a fantasy setting that has a lot of lore, you wouldn't worry about that level of lore that exists in our own real world. So why are you worrying about this in the, you know, in, in your fantasy or science fiction world? Focus on the stuff that's important for you and your players or you and your character and have fun with it. You don't need, uh, it's great that all that lore exists there. I, I love in Call of Cthulhu that Wikipedia exists, uh, <laughs> but I don't, you know, I don't feel compelled to, to, to drill down to the deepest level for every place I go. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about players and introducing them, you know, softly with a session zero. But I, you know, this conversation is leading into uh, a couple of questions that our Twitch people are asking, and that's very much from the GM's point of view. So let me just read out a couple of those questions. Ed Ed Valdezzo says, "Do you think that to run a game in a setting, a DM or GM needs to learn the whole setting and canon?" And then specifically here. I did try, uh, this is from Amethyst Talon, I did try and get into L5R a while back, but ended up never actually getting it to the table because there was so much lore and I never managed to get into it deep enough. So there's that sort of lack of confidence on GM's parts. And we've had comments like this uh, again, Matthias, about the Third Horizon. And frankly, you know, there, there's only one and a half books on the Third Horizon. We, sh you know, yeah. uh, there's not that much to read. <laughs> not like all these other games. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> uh, no, but I don't know where this fear comes from, you know, being afraid to misrepresent the set, a setting designed by a particular game studio or a particular person. Uh, but we see it a lot also when it comes to Symbrom, of course, and some of our other brands, even if they are not as lore heavy. And I just want to emphasize what's already been said. I mean, the lore, the setting, its conflicts, its uh, factions or whatever are tools. They are tools. The setting and the lore is a toolbox, just like the rule set for you to use to have fun with, right? Then I fully understand that there are diehard fans of certain settings or certain games that take pride in, you know, knowing the smallest detail about the most obscure characters uh, in that setting. And they... <laughs> of course, they can can get quite agitated if if we as as a studio uh, publish something that you know contradicts what's been said before. Uh, uh, so I'm I'm sure that we are all <laughs> trying to avoid that from happening. But from our perspective, as designers, what we what we first and foremost want to accomplish is to give you tools to tell, you know, to stage interesting, engaging, entertaining uh, game sessions. And that's what the lore is about. Some people will want to read everything, will want to study everything, will want to become experts on that setting, uh, on that world. Others can use whatever they need to become inspired to stage those game settings, uh, sessions, sorry. So, uh, and one thing that we haven't talked about yet, but a good tip for, for game masters would be to, to find the official adventures because those adventures, if done properly, they should tell you something about how, how the studio has envisioned you to play in that setting. Then when it comes to uh, Coriolis or, or Glorantha and many of these other games that we are talking about now, maybe not just read the one adventure, but maybe look uh, at several of them. And hopefully you will be able to see that, wow, you can, you can play different kinds of games in this in this setting with these rules. And most and, and most publishers do some, I mean, I know we do, and I know um, uh, I know Paradox has with um, uh, Vampire. They do uh, a series of, of starter or quick start yeah. or other intro adventures, and they're there to, to uh, help the GM and the players. Okay, this is how, how 
uh, conflict resolution works in this. Here's some good examples of the sorts of themes and issues that we imagine would be cool in this. Um, and and start with those. I mean, we wrote them. Yeah. We wrote them for a reason. They're, yeah, they're... <laughs> start with them in the sense that they are sounding boards for you. <laughs> I mean, if you if you read four or five adventure synopsis and you feel that none of these are the stories you want to tell, then you will probably have a better idea <laughs> on what stories you do want to uh, want to portray or or set in motion in this setting. So the adventures is is always a good place to start when when it comes to answering the, that question. What am I supposed to do in this world? I, I think a lot of it also comes down to like a, a fundamental question that I always get on my soapbox about, but I will only do a micro speech this time. Is it what what's a DM even for? What's your job? And the DM's job is to elicit an emotional reaction, to give your players an opportunity to have a story that they can get lost in and have an impact in, that they can be a world that they can be at cause in. Because oftentimes in real life, we don't feel like our actions or even our inactions have an impact. So the players are at the table to experience that and you as a dm are there to collaboratively because it's a collaborative art the dm you also want an emotional reaction but to build that together where you feel like you did something with your friends that mattered and if you look at it like that then the fact that you may or may not know which clan of dwarves occupied this mounting in 1976 doesn't matter i mean when when i wrote dungeons and dragons of dark and wish the the comic book the reason why it's set in the moonshine isles is i didn't want it to be in water deep or never winter baldur's gate or any of those places because i didn't want to be on the hook for 50 years of continuity <laughs> i didn't want to say this is in the basement of this building and then have the internet be like um excuse me clearly that is not the cake i was like you know what no we're going like way <laughs> over here way over here uh because that wasn't what i was trying to get out of it uh but to to uh, matthias's point some people are but i would submit again those people are going to go off and read it and enjoy it on that level and that is very valid um it's just like some people know all of the stats of their favorite football player they know where they went to school they know every game they played they know how many times they scored they know all of that other people just sit on the couch and turn on the game on Sunday and enjoy it. And that's cool too. And also that is how the mass, vast, 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 vast majority of people consume that entertainment. It's, um, well, now, like, just, I think some of the, like the fear uh, that you were talking about like that to, to know everything, I think some of it does come from uh, how RPGs are portrayed now, like on streams and things like that. You see professional voice actors and actors playing these games and creating these huge worlds and everything is very beautiful and everyone knows sort of the world and it's very thought out and I think that that could be quite intimidating if you have players that are fans of those streams who then come on and expecting you to be this person and you're like I can't put on accents and I don't know all the rules to these things I just I'm just t telling you the story that I'm telling you I think that could be quite intimidating for a for a GM if they know that their players are already like big fans of, of worlds that are being put out streaming and on TV and things. Good news, you, you have an accent on right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I can do an English London accent. <laughs> hey, I can't, well, for, there you go. For what it's worth, for what it's worth, and 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 I don't know, I, I reckon I'm one of the older people on this panel here. That anxiety and fear way predates actual play. It goes, I can remember, I can remember in the early days of uh, first edition D&D &D of people having anxiety of how am I supposed to do something with Castle Greyhawk without having had access to any of the Castle Greyhawk materials, which were actually kind of hard to get your hands on uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. It's just an, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a normal anxiety. It's been there always with the uh, with with this sort of art form, and I think it's just important to remind GMs and players this anxiety is is understandable, but really you don't need to be anxious about it. Just make it your own, and it'll it'll probably be better than the original source material in the first place because it's your version of it, and you had fun with it. Yeah, it's it's performance anxiety like anything else. And yeah. let me tell you, I, I've got good news for you. 
you're not Matt Mercer. You're not Jason Carl. You can't do what they do. You can't do what I do. You can't do what any of these people here with me today can do. But none of us can do what you do. We can't tell your story. We don't have your song to sing and your unique vision of something that's going to happen in this world, which makes your way of doing things innately valid. It just so happens some of us have a camera on when we do it. That's it. That's the only difference. Yeah. That's that's really good. And it does bring us into, uh, if you like, the last phase of this. We've just got um, 15 minutes. So I thought I'd go round the table again and ask uh, for each of you to give top three tips uh, for players or particularly, I think, for GMs getting into your world. So um, we'll go in reverse order the way we started uh, earlier on. Uh, Matthias, what are your top three tips? I, I don't know. I, we have covered most of this already. So the, the, my first uh, tip was uh, view the setting and lore just like the rules as a toolbox. Okay. The second one, and we've been into that, so I won't <laughs> backtrack. Uh, the second one, <laughs> make the setting yours because it is. <laughs> so again, we have covered that. But the, the third okay, one I'm, is I'm more... going to challenge yeah. you on this one, Matthias, though. Okay. Because uh, this is something that we know a little bit about because of our podcast, but we do get a lot of people saying, uh, okay, you read the core book, and obviously something special is happening in Toan, and nobody else on the panel is going to know where, where that is, but you know there's something mysterious happening, but you don't know what it is in the core book. Um and I don't, therefore, mm. as a GM, I don't want to do anything about that because I want to know the answer to that before I move. Uh, that sort of paralysis has been mentioned, and that particular instance we mentioned a couple of times. Well, How do I deal can, with that if I'm a new GM? Yeah, you can do one or two things. Uh, on the one hand, you can choose that you are so curious about what we would answer uh, uh, that question, how we would answer that question, and you wait. Uh, otherwise, you can decide that that's, that's a plot hook that we have planted there for you to do something cool with. If it should turn out that you do something cool with that, uh, that plot hook, and then we come up with another answer on what happened or, or what the mystery is, go with your version of it. I mean, again, it's your world. Don't yeah. be. Don't wait for us to 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 reveal the the secrets. If if, if you feel that I I want to run with this, then do it. So cool. And yeah. as you as as people have said here, your world is going to be better because it's the one that excites your players. It's yeah. not. You know. Yeah. You don't have to wait for the right answer. I mm. guess is what you're saying here. Uh, is there a third tip before I move on? Sorry. To yeah, the, the third one is more uh, specifically for for the third horizon. And one thing that I, I and I think this is quite important to point out. I don't know if it's true regarding all the other settings we have on display here today, but in in the third horizon, when you read it and when you portray it, try to understand uh, its people and factions from their viewpoints and not in terms of, you know, right and wrong, good and bad, true or false or whatever, because the, the setting of Third Horizon is, it's not black, black and white, it's not even shades of gray. It's essentially perspective, if that's a word in English, perspectivistic, you know, we'll make it a word. What, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we'll make it a word. There, there are evil. There, there is, uh, there is good. There is truth in the world of the third horizon, but not in any objective sense. Uh, what is evil is is primarily a question of perspective. So, if if you want to understand how that world operates and how how it has been designed, you. You should try not to, you know, uh, dive into it with a looking after the good and the bad, the true and the false, the 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 right and the wrong, but rather try to understand it, its people and 
and infections from their own. That is very good advice, yeah. except for the Zenithian hegemony. They, they're, they're just evil. Ah, that's what, yeah, <laughs> I, I know more than you do, man. We can, we can take this discussion later. <laughs> okay. Uh, and Julie, what are your okay. three tips? I'll try and be quick. Uh, GM tip. Don't hold yourself up against anyone else when it comes to being a GM. Don't, even if, like, your friends, I'm not just talking, like, people you see online, but even your friends who GM for you, do things in your way. I am a yes DM who plays fast and loose with the rules. If you saw of Dyson Penn on the Wizards of the Coast channel, I let my players run amok with uh, the story. Um, and that's fun, because that's how I have fun, and that's how they uh, have fun. And So just... Yeah, don't don't try and be someone else when you DM. Just do you. Uh, for the players, um, make sure you uh, know your set your expectations for what you want the story to be and how you want your character to progress, and talk to uh, your GM about it. Um, because you're telling a story together, and if your, your GM isn't a mind reader, you have to be able to say to him like, "This is sort of what I've got planned. Can we work this into the story?" And, you know, nine times out of ten, your, your GM will be happy to work that into the story and make it work for you and everyone else at the table. Uh, final thing is for both GMs and players, um, make sure you're having fun. If you're not having fun at the table, try and work out why that is. Is it the story? Is it the other players? And have that discussion. Uh, if you need to change the story, if you need to stop playing this story and start from scratch all over again because it's just not doing it for you, that's okay. As long as you're honest and... Yeah, with all the rest of the players. So, yeah, they're my three tips. And uh, three very good tips there. Uh, Dave, be Dave. Tell me, what are your three tips? Uh, in the spirit of making the game your own and using the rules as a framework, I actually have a couple more than three, but I'm going to do it super quick. <laughs> For onboarding into the actual world of darkness, pretty much every vampire story you've seen in the last 30 years was inspired by the world of darkness. <laughs> Though if it involved vampires or werewolves, it's the world of darkness. So pick a thing that you like. If you're like, I really like True Blood, tell a True Blood story, tell an underworld story, tell a uh, interview with a vampire story, and just build on it from there. Um, in terms of the general thing if you're even thinking about playing if you're thinking about starting if you're thinking about dming do it do it do it do it do it don't let anything stop you do it um pay it and this is more of a general storytelling thing start paying attention to what you like and what you don't like and more importantly why if you saw a stream and you liked what was it that resonated if you played in a game and it didn't sit right figure out what didn't resonate so you can kind of hone your own storytelling style more more specifically um as a dm at your table your only enemy is meh if people seem zoned out or whatever, don't feel bad if you want to ban phones at your table. If people are kind of zoning out, pull them back into it. What are you doing? You tell me what happened. When we entered this room, it's a lavish ballroom. What does it look like? It's a collaborative art. Let your characters, your players participate in it, especially if you let them describe how they kill enemies. They really enjoy doing <laughs> that. Uh, and last but certainly not least, when you're playing don't look at it in terms of what you can get, look at it in terms of what you can give. Because if I can tell you, one of the reasons why I've been successful as a player and I get invited to so many tables, some of which I'll be playing with some of these other people soon, I think, um, <laughs> is because if you watch, especially in LA by night, I'm always passing it to someone else. I say something, what do you think? I agree with him, what do you think? I'm always trying to dish it off to someone else instead of just trying to grab the spotlight. Give your other players and your other people at the table an opportunity for them to be a badass. You know, when you sit do your attack, it's like I set him up and I knock him down towards him just to let them describe the fact that they finish him off because they will feel so good and that will strengthen the bond between you and make the table a more exciting place overall. Thanks very much for that one. And Jeff? Hey, three. Uh, and this is more focused on dealing with uh, complex IPs like ours. First and foremost, start small and work your game up. Pick a little corner somewhere. Start there. Don't try to don't don't try to define the entire setting uh, right at the beginning. Just start somewhere small. And in if you're playing uh, RuneQuest or Glorantha, start with a clan or a, a tribe somewhere, and it explore the setting along with your players. 
The second one is, and this this is a particular one for a lot of our games, ground your game in a community. You know, your characters, the characters there shouldn't be murder hobos. And actually, murder hobos are more work for the GM. Uh, it's much easier for a GM to ground your, your characters in a community because that community ends up making emotional connections easier. It gives you a fixed roster of, of NPCs that they can bounce off and, and have uh, maximum game fun with. Community, community, community. Don't let them. Don't let them become the, the wandering hobos because that's more work for you. And the third one is, and this is a, a thing I use in any game. Actions have consequences, and those consequences create new stories. And when you've let your players begin to to snowball by doing the sort of things the players do, the setting should react against that which creates a new story. And eventually you have a campaign that is completely created by the deeds and actions of your players for good or bad. And it's defining how they have been interacting with that setting. And so no matter how deep the lore is on this, you have, uh, as a GM, you've been able to, to, to master that by letting your players do their thing and having the the consequences of their thing generate the next story. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Jeff. Um, we are pretty much out of time. Uh, I think we've answered most of the questions, but um, uh, yeah. In fact, I'm not going to I'm not going to say any more questions here. Instead, I'm going to. Uh, and so, uh, B. Dave, I guess the last word should go to you in this little bit of plugging. Literally somewhere seven days a week. Follow me uh, on Twitter at BDaveWalters. I'm doing Outbreak Undead on Tuesdays, uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse on Fridays, D&D on Tuesday and Thursdays, um, Dungeons and Dragons of Dark and Wish. Our big finale is next week, uh, season 10. Um, and yeah, follow me on Twitter. Uh, find it all out. And I say again, if you're thinking about running games, thinking about playing games, do it. Get your friends together, grab some dice, have some fun tell some stories just do it that's great final words to say you have been listening to the effect podcast presented by fiction suit and the rpg gods music stars on a black sea used with permission of free league publishing